Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, educators Kyleen Beers and Bob Prost join us to talk about their new book, Disrupting Thinking, Why How We Read Matters. The book gives teachers hands-on strategies to help students read more deeply, sharpen their comprehension and critical thinking skills, and become lifelong readers. The book is a reminder, says educator Frankie Siberson, that we're not in the business of raising readers who can merely retell a story or pass a test. Instead, we're growing responsive, responsible, empathic readers who come away from a text with a better understanding of other people, their world, and themselves. Welcome, Kyleen and Bob. We're so glad that you could join us. Thank Thank you. you. We're excited to be here. Tell us, why did you write Disrupting Thinking? What inspired you? Two things. Two big motivations for me. One was the observation that I made of myself that I had uh, taught much of reading poorly, and I had taught kids that a lot of reading was the extracting of material from texts. I didn't do that uniformly and universally, but I did it too often. And I see it too often in the public schools now. People seem to be teaching kids that they ought to be taking stuff out of texts and moving it over into their own notebooks or maybe into their memory. And I don't think that reading is essentially that. I think reading is really transacting with a text and confronting the text and reshaping your vision and your thoughts accordingly. That, so that's one motivation. The other motivation uh, I drew from public language and public discourse. I saw an awful lot of people, I thought, who read texts only to confirm what they already thought and believed. They wanted a text to tell them, you don't have to think about this anymore. What you have thought all your life is correct and true, and there's no, no point raising any question about it. That, it seemed to me, failed to recognize the potential power of a text to give you a new perspective, or simply just new information, or new evidence. And if you had new information, new evidence, a new way of thinking about something, it ought to change your thinking. It ought to disrupt it slightly in the process of making it better. If your thinking never changes, if it's never disrupted, you may as well not read at all. There's no sense in reading. It doesn't do anything for you or with you. Well, and I think, Bob, that you're right. That's what we were seeing in too many classrooms we had gone into. We were watching teachers try strategy after strategy with kids, and sometimes those were our strategies, and sometimes they were strategies they had learned in other places. And yet, at the end of the day, we continued to see children just plodding through a book. And so in in many ways, for me, this book represents a culmination. This book, in some ways, now feels like the book we've always been moving toward. It's the book that says, here's the aha. It takes everything we've done. It 
pulls from Bob's original book, Response and Analysis, and my book, When Kids Can't Read, and, and the books we've done together, and all of the learning that we've done in all of the classrooms of all of the teachers who have invited us in to really say, what, what have we been missing? And we think that this book represents, at least for us, a piece that's been important and a piece that has been missing. And it's that piece that says, oh, gosh, the reading I do ought to disrupt my thinking. And if it disrupts the thinking we do, it has the potential to change who we are. And so maybe we've got this grand vision when we wrote this book that reading can help us change, if not the world, then at least ourselves. Could you cite a specific text, a, a work of fiction that, say, might a teacher might use with her students and how that teacher might approach the text with the class? You know, I, I think what's exciting about this is the teacher can pick up any text. The teacher can pick up any text. So let's say the teacher is reading with students, um, the Watsons go to Birmingham. And in the discussion of that, what she'll see through reading this book is that we encourage her to still talk about what the kids are learning that's in the book. We always need to pay attention to what's in the book, but to also think about what's, let students think about what's in their head so that they're thinking about the inferences they make and the connections they make and the things they visualize and the surprises that the text brings to them, but then to begin to move toward what we would suggest has been missing, which are those questions that ask kids to consider how that text will change them. So what is it they've taken to heart? And so they'll be looking at a text from um, three points of view, what's in the book, what's in the head, and what's in the heart. And as they consider all three of those, then I think, and Bob, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, I think it'll raise up the kind of reader we're talking about, that responsive, responsible, and compassionate reader. I was thinking as we were dealing with the previous question that as we've worked for the last 10 or 15 years on this writing and our consulting with teachers, it seems to things seem to have grown simpler, and to reduce it to bookhead and heart seems to have made it simpler and cleaner and clearer, and yet uh, even uh, more powerful for me. The the most important part of writing this last book, dis disrupting thinking for me, was the hour or so we spent talking about the Mary Oliver poem, because we tried to submit that text to the kinds of questions that, kinds of conversation that we thought might grow out of attention to what's in the book, what's in your head, what you bring to the book, and what you take to heart from it. So, as, Bob, I'm going to pop in for just one second. Sure. For folks that haven't looked at the book yet, there's a, a section in which we describe our conversation that the two of us had together after having read one of Mary Oliver's particular poems, and that's what Bob's referencing right now. Yes, and, and that was a, a powerful and significant moment to me, because although I had read, with, read that poem, The Journey, for many years, uh, submitting it, subjecting it to the kind of approach we were recommending in, in disrupting thinking, uh, Help me see it in a new way and, and help me realize more sharply and clearly 
why that poem was important to me, what I ought to carry away from it, how I ought to slightly change what I was doing as a result of it. We know that that's important that we give kids this opportunity to think about how reading is going to change them because we can look back in time from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, uh, all the way till now. And I, and I would start with the 80s because it's been since then that we can look historically and say, as a nation, we've spent more time and more money in trying to help kids become lifetime readers. We also know that since maybe the mid-70s on, we've had an explosion in children's and young adult literature. So we have, we've had this enormous number of books children can choose to read, and we've had more and more time and attention spent on how do we help them read, and yet the research continues to show that year after year, more and more kids leave school at the end of 12th grade saying they'll never again voluntarily read another book. And that's because the books haven't mattered to them. That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. They haven't cared. They haven't been relevant. They haven't shaped their lives or their thinking or their feelings. Well, and I think it's even more than relevant, Bob. I think it's that the kids haven't seen the meaning in the book. I think we've so said it's about hitting a particular lexile level. Seriously, we don't read so that we can move up in a lexile level. If we do that, we will create nothing other than a nation of school-time readers. We ought to read because it gives us the chance to be better and bigger and beyond what we are. And we know, we know as a nation that that's what reading does because we tried to keep entire groups of people from learning to read. Why did we say to people, you can't learn to read? Why did we say to women, you don't need to go to school? Why did we say to African-Americans during slave times, you don't need to read? It was because we understand the power of reading. And so reading as a way to change us is what's critically important in disrupting thinking. How do we balance the need for standardized testing or for some baseline with generating excitement for reading among students? Well, you don't balance it. That's the first problem. You don't balance it. And I think we've been trying to do that. We've been trying to give as much weight to passing a test as we've given to becoming a lifetime reader. They're not a balance. So the first thing we've got to do is recognize that the reason we go to school is not to pass a test. It is a part of going to school. The reason we go to school is to discover all that we can be. The reason we go to to school is to discover what it is that we're good at and we want to get better at to help us become members of a democratic society, help us become active participants in that society. And somewhere along the way, part of that means becoming a lifetime reader, not only so that we can experience other things through vicarious reading, but so that we can learn things that aren't filtered through someone else's vision, that political pundit, that newspaper reporter. And so if we're in a school that gives as much credit and time to preparing for a test as it does to helping a kid discover passion for reading, then then we will never reach what we're trying to do. So we think that the first thing you have to do is back off from thinking it's a balance. 
you reminded me of two things. Uh, one was that my father used to tell me all the time, your education will be whatever remains after you've forgotten everything you've learned in school, by which I think he meant uh, I was going to forget names, places, details, all of the sort of stuff that ended up on tests to make sure I had comprehended well and read well. And what I was going to be left with was intellectual predispositions, curiosity, a willingness to ask for evidence or offer evidence if I happened to be the one making the assertions. All of those intellectual habits and attitudes toward the big questions of the world, that was going to remain. That was going to stay with me. I also happened to think of a particular experience with a book. When I had read a book, someone, someone recommended I read Lonesome Dove. And I said, no, I don't. I read a Western once. I don't ever want to go through that again. But I did go ahead and read it, and I loved it. And I still remember the first time I talked about it with someone, uh, the, I confused my listener. He said, now, wait a minute. Who, who's, the, who's the main figure in this book? And I could not think of his name. And I thought that my teachers would have judged me harshly because of that. They would have said, Inadequate reading. didn't read mm -hmm. very carefully. And I think instead I was reading so carefully. I had become the main character, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's maybe why I couldn't remember his name. So, again, I'm not sure that the we're looking for a balance. Actually, in, in essence, I think we are looking for the, the gradual replacement of artificial and formulaic reading with real reading, reading in which you encounter the text, take it to heart, think hard about it, and reshape your visions as a result. How does that look in the classroom? Could you give us an example? So in a classroom, it means instead of telling kids to begin with, I think you it's time to pull out a book and read. You can choose only from this shelf that it's really first about asking a kid what's your interest you know, that conversation with getting kids into a book ought to start with the question, what are you interested in instead of what's your reading level? So the first thing we have to do is recognize the role of choice in helping kids become lifetime readers. The second thing for me that it means is that I want teachers to step back, turn on a tape recorder, record some of their own conversations with students. That's a hard thing to do because then you have to listen to it later on. And then to recognize or to actually evaluate how many questions they ask that are monologic versus dialogic. And the easiest way for a teacher to know the difference between monologic and dialogic questions is if when you ask the question, you already know the answer you're asking a monologic question. So if I walk into a classroom and say, boys and girls, who's the main character in Hatchet? There's not a student in the room who's going to say, oh my gosh, Miss Beers doesn't know. Let's help her. <laughs> they, they know I know the answer to that question. Instead, if I walk in and say, boys and girls, what in this section that we just read surprises you? Well, then I, I don't know what you're going to say. I've moved from an inauthentic question to an authentic question. And when I move to authentic questions, dialogic questions, the research is conclusive that a lot of positive things will happen. 
more students will begin answering. More students will listen to each other. You'll have more student-to-student interaction. And interestingly, your um, length of utterance, so how long your answer is, will go up. And that means that kids will begin to hear their lack of logic in a statement, their lack of consistency in a statement, and begin to correct that. And eventually, and this isn't my first thing to look for, but it is for some people, um, standardized test scores go up. So what, what we need to see in a classroom is a shift from that type of question. Bob, earlier you called it um, extracting from a text, those monologic questions that let you extract from a text to those dialogic questions that let you transact, interact with a text. And related to that, I think uh, one other clue to this this approach to teaching in the classroom will be that the teacher will respect and solicit from the students their own questions because their own questions are almost inevitably going to be dialogic questions. They're going to be questions that they are curious about, that they wonder about. Very few kids will ask, what was the color of the horse in chapter three? They don't really care about that, but they do care about choices, motivations, purposes, consequences, and they raise those questions. And those questions invite interesting and significant conversation. These are terrific insights for parents as well, it seems to me. Well, I think that almost anything that works well in a classroom ought to work well at home. And I think that when parents ask, what can I do to help my child um, be a better reader, that rarely are they asking about reading rate. Um, Mostly they're asking, how can I help reading be more meaningful to my child? And so when we're talking with parents about um, using some of this work and some of these strategies at home with, with their own children, the very first thing we tell them and remind them is that if if they want their child to become a lifetime reader, then that child needs to occasionally see the parents reading in their lifetime. So they need to turn off the TV. They need to get away from Facebook. They need to turn off Twitter. They need to actually step away from the kitchen sink. They need to come in from the garage. They need to stop what they're doing and actually sit beside their child and read. And that child can be reading what the child needs to or wants to be reading while the parent's reading what he or she wants to be reading, newspaper, magazine, even something for work is still saying to kids, wow, look, I'm getting meaning from this and it's, it's helping me think about something. And then we occasionally need to just nudge our child while we're reading and say, I have got to interrupt you. Look at this really cool word I just found. Or listen to this sentence. Or I love the way the author said this. Even if the child isn't going to understand exactly what we're talking about, they hear that reading was meaningful to the parent. And I think that's a critical first step. We also are doing a better job of hearing from more people, more different experiences, people from different backgrounds. We still have a long way to go, but how do you address that in the book? 
we address this issue of diversity and needing diverse books for our students in a couple of ways. Number one, we mention as many books as we can that um, represent authors from diverse backgrounds. Number two, we have a, a link to our online resource that provides teachers with places to find books. And we, of course, highlight books from um, diverse authors. But we also make it clear in the book that the most important book that a child reads and research shows is most likely to finish is the book that the child chooses. And so if we will if we'll step away from our own biases of what we think children ought to read, too many times teachers walk into a class and say, but I loved this when I was in seventh grade. So I know this group of seventh graders will love this. Or this is what my child loved when she was in third grade. So I want these kids to have that book. That's our bias. If we want a book to be meaningful, it has to be relevant. And that means we need to have classrooms filled with all sorts of books for any child to find the book that matters most to him or her. I, I would agree completely with that. Okay, uh, we I should think... stop him there since he said I would agree completely. <laughs> that one doesn't happen so often. Very good. End of sentence, Bob. <laughs> I know. But as you were talking about choice, I got to thinking about providing that rich resource for kids in the classroom, library, and wherever you can in the school. Uh, but it also is incumbent upon the teacher to help the kids with that choice. Uh, choice can sometimes be overwhelming. I walk into a large bookstore and I think to myself, my gosh, if I read one sentence out of each of these books, it would take me forever to taste them all. And it would be hopelessly inadequate anyway. One sentence wouldn't do it. So I need help. Um, and of course, not remembering my reading level, I can't go to the clerk and say, where are the books at level Q or whatever my reading level might be? Bob, do you even know your reading I level? I don't know my reading level. Oh my I, I'm thinking of taking some sort of a test uh, so that I can have it assessed. Maybe, but that won't help me much, I fear, because they don't organize books that way in the... In the real world. In the, in the real world. I have to know that I'm interested in this or that, or I like this writer, don't like that writer. Choose, I, I need some help with the choice. Absolutely. You know, Bob, you said one time we had gone into... Um, well, this will show people just how academic we are. We had gone into a Best Buy to um, look at more computer cords. And as we walked past all the televisions, I said to Bob, oh, my gosh, how would someone buy a television today? Because there are so many different so ones. Many and Bob said, too many choices can actually mean no choice. <laughs> Too many choices can actually mean no choice, that we're likely to just say to the kid who walks by, show me the TV that I need. And I think the same thing can be true for a child who is just learning about genre, about author, and about his own taste. If we just take them to the school library and say, choose a book, the chances are that kid who is what I'll call an uncommitted reader doesn't know if he loves it or doesn't love it kind of a book-at-a-time reader, hand me the right book and I'll read it, but then I'm done. That kid who just wanders the stacks of a library, that child will benefit from a smaller library. 
the teacher putting books out on the, okay, here's how old I am, the chalkboard ledge. Uh, remember when we used to have chalk in a classroom? Putting, the, putting books out someplace where kids still have a choice, but it's a slightly more limited choice. Limited choice. Because as Bob says, too much choice is actually no choice. I remember when my car radio had FM and AM, and I knew one or two FM stations that I chose among because one of them played classical, one of them gave me news, one of them gave me other kinds of music. I like AM stations, the ball game would always be on this one. I had about six or seven stations. So my kids gave me, for Christmas one year, uh, a serious radio set. Um, I had 600 channels. Uh, stations. And I frankly gave up. I left it on NPR. I only listened to one for the rest of my life. Since then, I've only listened to one radio station. Too much choice. No choice. Well, on that score with the chalkboard and the news channels, let's get to the surfeit of information that kids actually do have growing up in a digital age. How we seem to have very divergent views on what is even factual information or not. How do we address that phenomenon in our society? Factual information in the past has united us. Now, not so much, it seems. But you know what an interesting way of saying that, that factual information at one point was what united us. And right now we seem to be at this turning point where competing visions of what is factual information is absolutely what is tearing us apart. Um, in the book, we absolutely visit this, vis- this idea of thinking that disrupts because it is false. And that is, of course, not what this book is intended to do. This book is disrupting thinking is about saying, what do we need to change and what assumptions do we need to challenge to make those changes? But along with that comes this notion that to be that type of thinker, we must be responsible to the text. We must be responsible to the text, and we must be responsible to ourselves and to other readers. And being responsible to ourselves doesn't mean holding on to what we have previously thought because we don't want to change. It means if I am presented with evidence, language, logic that that seems substantial, that obligates me to change, then I should change. I should, in all responsibility to myself, say, I've been wrong, I changed my mind about something. That's responsibility, not, not just resistance. You know, in, in disrupting thinking, we talk about fake news and we, and we talk about the difference between bias and satire and fake. And one of the things that we explored and played with, it was this idea that satire expects, demands, relies upon the reader being intelligent. Smart enough to see through, see through the exaggerations to the truths behind them. And fake news expects, demands, and requires that the reader be gullible. And that's what we're trying to do is move kids toward that that level of saying, you know, we ask kids to think just of three questions. How does this news look? What does this news say? And how does it make me feel? 
How does it look? What does it say? How does it make me feel? And if we can bring those three questions to bear upon any piece of news, but especially news that we are slightly concerned might be fake news, then we'll push away from this gullible person to the person who, as Peter Elbow said, reads with more of a skeptic's eye because fake news writers need their readers to be gullible. Peter Elbow talked about, uh, in, the, in, in reading and writing both, I think, if I'm remembering him correctly, he talked about the importance of occasionally playing the believing game and also playing the doubting game. And the doubting game was the uh, attitude of the skeptic who looks at things and says, I wonder if this could be true or, or might be false. The believing game, on the other hand, says, I'm going to try to believe this for a moment and see where it takes me. I'm going to try to wear the mantle that the writer is giving me, give, has given me, and see what I can do with it. And it doesn't mean that you get stuck there <laughs> in either of those two roles, but that it is beginning to, it's a way of beginning to explore the text. The complexities of fake news, the presence in our society of fake news and of outright lies that we are being offered, places a heavy responsibility on the reader because the reader has to check them out, has to go beyond them. But that's what a reader ought to be doing anyway. That's the, that's the scientific process. Acquire information, formulate a hypothesis, um, acquire more information, change the hypothesis, and gradually refine your understandings as a result of acquiring more and more insight, more and more perspectives. That seems helpful, particularly because observers say that there is much more opinion in the news as well, not just straight factual information, but there can be accurate information, but shaded by opinion or even bias. Well, and we were in a school not too many weeks ago, and a student said, this is an opinion, as he looked at a text, and he said, therefore, it's false. And I said, so what makes something true? And he said, if it's a fact. And I said, so if someone from the, that had survived the Holocaust said, in my opinion, this was the worst time of my life, the student said, well, then, because he said, in my opinion, it would be false. And then he stopped and said, but it would be true. And then he said, but it's an opinion, so it's false. And you could see him trying to figure this out. Now, this child was in sixth grade. So I would have hoped that a few years before that, he would have come to understand that the word opinion doesn't automatically declare something false, and it certainly doesn't automatically declare something true. Instead, he ended up saying, he was really cute. He looked at me and said, oh, no, you have to look at everything and see what everything means. And I said, yeah, you actually have to look at everything and see what everything means. Yeah, <laughs> That's a little onerous. <laughs> yes. An opinion is often a thought or a feeling about facts. The, f the facts may or may not change depending upon whether you get information that refutes what, how you understand them. But we may feel differently about them. And that's where opinion enters in. Uh, but the facts, theoretically at least, 
we ought to be able to establish. I try to make a distinction between attributive and expressive statements. And an expressive statement is a statement about how I feel, how I think, what I want, where I want to go. Um, and I am sort of the authority on that. I might lie, but I'm really the authority on what, on how I feel and how I think. Attributive statements, on the other hand, say something about the world outside, and you ought to be, you ought to be uh, willing to defend them. It is my opinion, it's my feeling that I wish I could fly. Okay, nobody can dispute that well. But if I assert I can fly, you are perfectly within your right to say, leap off the top of this building and show me. And if I can't do that, then you, you say to me, you have lied. You have simply flatly lied. And that's what we, we need to make a distinction between these kinds of statements. You know, what you're hearing Bob do right there is actually share with you some of the earliest, earliest thinking that we were doing years ago about this book. So Bob began talking about those two types of thinking, expressive and attributive, long before we ever thought disrupting thinking would be a book. But we were thinking about the types of thinking that was evident in the statements people were making or in the statements that they were writing. And eventually, that, that little kernel became something that bothered us enough that we began looking into classrooms and watching students and listening to students to say, where is their thinking going? And then it was one day when we saw a little, a little girl wearing totally mismatched socks. One, one sock and the other sock had nothing to do with each other, and she could see us staring at her knee socks. And she looked at us and said, you know, they don't match. And we said, well, yes, we noticed. And she said, there is no rule that says socks have to match. And she <laughs> went off down the hall, and I thought, well, actually— there's not. There's not a rule anywhere that's ever been written that says socks have to match. And when we went and read about this company that is selling mismatched socks so that mothers and fathers who are taking clothes out of the dryer don't have to keep saying, where's that other sock? We began to realize that this company had based its very smart thinking on this idea of disrupting the status quo. And this notion of disrupting the status quo led us to this vision that we ought to be disrupting thinking. But it really all began a long time ago when Bob began speaking about both those attributive and expressive ways of thinking. I wish I had monosyllabic terms for them. <laughs> the multisyllabic word suggests deeper thought than I've given them yet, but I'll keep searching. I hope listeners will go out and get this book. Meanwhile, for the teacher who listens to us, what do you want him or her to do tomorrow in the classroom to disrupt thinking? What I want the teacher to do tomorrow is to stand there and share a portion of a text that's important. That could be something that you read in the newspaper last night. It could be a portion of a novel that you're reading. It, important doesn't have to be the most important, but something that was important and say to students, here's why this mattered to me. 
Here's why this mattered to me. Don't make it about a vocabulary lesson. Don't make it about a fluency lesson. Don't make it about I can compare and contrast or here's the inference I made. Just say, I want to share this with you and I want to tell you why this was meaningful to me. If we can start there, then kids may begin to internalize when I read, it's supposed to matter to me. Yeah, I think that's a great start. And beyond that, I would want teachers to work to get kids to articulate their own questions about texts and explore them. There are various ways of doing that, but that's that's the strategy, that's the approach I would urge the teacher to take in the classroom tomorrow. Great discussion. Thank you, Kylene and Bob, both so very much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. We enjoyed it. My great thanks again to Kylene Beers and Bob Probst for joining us. To learn more about their book, Disrupting Thinking, Why How We Read Matters, go to scholasticreads.com.